I often talk and think about this particular period of the retreat as being not only a great reflection of the dreamlike nature of things, because where did it go? But also a very powerful indication of the kind of difficulties and challenges and joys that we face in daily life practice, particularly because this time of the retreat tends to be marked by a great deal of ups and downs. Lots of changes, times of being very peaceful, other times of being quite restless and uneasy. And so I want to talk some more tonight about the nature of our lives, these changes, these ups and downs, and the great quality of equanimity, which helps us to greet all of these changes with some balance and some ability to learn from them. My favorite story about seeing the changing faces of our experience has to do with this year when Joseph and I were teaching in Sweden and going on from there to teach in Australia. We had decided to stop in India to visit our teacher, Deepama, because she was getting older. It seemed like an important thing to do to make that effort to go to Calcutta to see her. This left us entering Calcutta in the summer, which for that area of India is the, is the rainy season. The day after we arrived, we went in the afternoon to her little apartment, which was in a very poor section of Calcutta. And the entire time that we were in her room speaking to her, it was pouring rain outside, just torrential sheets of rain which I didn't think anything of being there. But as we left her apartment at dusk and we went down onto the streets, I discovered that what happens in Calcutta in the rainy season when there's such a heavy rain for many hours is that as the rain pours down, the sewers start to overflow. So we walked downstairs and there were the streets with several feet high of sewage. We're standing there on the curb, and I looked at Joseph, and Joseph looked at me, and he said, this should be interesting. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, if you're six foot three, this is going to be interesting. But you know, as soon as I step down off that curb, it's really going to be horrible. And it was. It was absolutely horrible. It was walking through the streets in sewage with rats swimming by, Every sense door was being assaulted by something terribly unpleasant. It smelled horrible. It felt horrible. It was scary. I had just read this book. Perhaps some of you have read it called City of Joy, which talks about this medical student who goes to Calcutta to serve amongst the poor there. And on his first or second night in Calcutta, he fell down a manhole in the dark. And it took about four hours to resuscitate him. So there we are walking along, and it's getting darker. And so on top of everything else, it was made all the more horrible by the mind state that I was in. Four or five days after that, having escaped Calcutta, we were in Sydney. And somebody (coughs) took us to the Sydney Opera House to hear a symphony. 
there we were sitting in the Sydney Opera House, which is an extraordinarily beautiful building right on the harbor, an amazing architectural monument. We're listening to the strains of Dvorak and Brahms. Everybody's wearing beautiful clothing and smells very nice. And it was like every sense store was experiencing something beautiful. I was sitting there thinking, what happened to Calcutta? <laughs> you know, here it is, it's so lovely. And that night, just before we had gone to the symphony, this friend took us out to dinner. She took us to one of those restaurants, you know, that they have in so many cities, which is on top of a very tall building, and it revolves around as you're eating so that you get a great sweeping panoramic view of the city. So there we were, sitting in this beautiful restaurant, looking at the beautiful city, having lovely food, which is very elegantly served. The next time that this particular friend and I shared a meal, we were in Burma together, which was about five or six months later. We were sitting at the same table for that period of practice. Now, eating in Burma was often a very interesting experience because the food was all offered as dana by the people. Sometimes it would be one person, sometimes it would be a family. Sometimes a whole village would come together to offer the food to the people who were meditating because they so honored and respected the fact that people were actually doing the practice. People always offered the very best that they could. But Burma is also a very poor country and so sometimes the very best that people could offer was a very little bit of food that wasn't very good. And this particular day was one of those days where it was just a little bit of rice and a very kind of bitter vegetable floating in oil. And as you chewed this vegetable, it turned into a ball of wooden pulp in your mouth. And I was sitting there at the table watching this woman chewing the vegetable. And I remembered the last time that we had shared a meal, which was in that lovely restaurant with the sweeping views of Sydney and having all of that delicious food so nicely served. But what happened? You know, we can see it in the short scale of a few days or a few hours or a few moments, or we can see it in the longer term picture. Our lives are continually, constantly moving between contrasts. We have pleasure and pain and gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. That's the very nature of life. The question is, how can the human heart absorb this? How can it live with all of this? How can we hold all of this change with some sense of wholeness and of coherence and of harmony. How can we stay whole and in harmony with all of this instead of feeling shattered by the changing nature of things? Not only can we stay whole and in harmony in the sense of somehow enduring or making our way through it, but the question is can we experience freedom in all of this? through all of the immense changes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. 
what in the Taoist tradition are called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. We experience this over and over again. And who in this life has only praise or only pleasure? It doesn't happen that way. We are continually moving between these contrasts. Recently, I, as many of you know, I've been working on a book, a meta book, and I decided to send it out during the period of this course to different publishers to see if somebody wanted to publish it. So the first letter that I got back from the publisher said something like, we would be really delighted to publish your book. It's so uniquely personal and special. And of course, I felt very good. And then the next letter I got from a publisher said, there's nothing at all distinctive about your style and nothing personal. And I thought, well, <laughs> that feels really bad. <laughs> so I went and I showed the second letter to Joseph, and he said, it's a good thing that other letter came first, now wasn't it? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it was a good thing. <laughs> we like to get praise. We don't like to get blame. We don't like it when we experience loss, when we experience pain. But what can we do? This is the very nature of life. Mostly, we respond to these changes with either elation or despair, depending on what is happening. So it's like a wild careening back and forth, over and over again, without any cessation or without any rest. Or else we have a kind of indifferent feeling of not noticing, of repressing our feelings of anxiety, not being connected to what's actually going on. So we learn how, in fact, to be connected, how to be fully present with all of these 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows without withering, without falling apart. Sometimes we can experience the heart or the mind withering. We can experience that shrinking or that contraction. We get brittle or we get rigid. And we can also experience the opposite of that. We can experience some buoyancy in the mind, some pliability and tranquility and a sense of direct connection to what's going on. That is equanimity. In Pali, the word is upekka. And it has an aspect of spacious stillness that can let things be how they actually are based on trust and based on understanding. It's like the seasons. As the weather changes, winter may come and we may not prefer it, but we trust it in a sense. We don't think that something has gone terribly wrong because winter has come. It's all right that it's present. That's actually the characteristic of equanimity. It's the ability to arrest the mind before it falls into wild extremes, that very violent movement for or against what our experience is. But it's not an easy state to understand. It's not an easy state to describe either, because it's not, as we might fear it to be, a kind of emotional emptiness. It's not a sense of being withdrawn from things, of being removed from things, because that actually is a very subtle form of ill will, of pushing away or shrinking away from what's going on. 
Equanimity is more a sense of radiant calm. It's a feeling of sufficiency, being able to accept things as they are, to say this is how things are, this is the truth of the moment. So the example that's often used is being like the earth, where all kinds of things can be cast upon the earth, beautiful things and frightening things and terrible things and extraordinary things, but the earth doesn't reject any of it. The earth can hold it. The earth can sustain its own integrity throughout. But sometimes this, this sense of equanimity can invoke images of passivity, as though we don't care about things. We just turn into a kind of victim where anything can happen and we won't protest. And so in that light, it can have a certain feeling or tone of being very dull or being heartless. But what equanimity actually is, is an unshakable balance of mind. It's not born out of emotional emptiness, but rather is born out of a sense of fullness and of understanding, of being complete and being in harmony. The unshakability of equanimity isn't something that's cold and withdrawn and dead, but it's a manifestation of great strength because it has those qualities, that sense of buoyancy, of resiliency, of expansiveness, of calm. It's quite an extraordinary state. It's as difficult to understand in a way as patience is. You know, we can think about patience as being something like gritting our teeth and enduring somehow. But patience also means to accept fully that which is happening, to see it as it is. As a factor of mind, equanimity serves to balance the other very beautiful and essential heart qualities that we talk about in the Brahma Viharas. We talk so much about developing metta, to have loving kindness, to have friendship, to have gentleness towards all beings. And we develop it not just towards those whom we like, but also towards those whom we have difficulty with and those that we don't even know, those near and those far away. We can, in fact, develop metta without selecting and without excluding because of our understanding about interconnectedness, that we are all one in some fundamental sense. Many years ago, the Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh came here to visit. He was sitting in the library with some of us, and somebody asked him a question about the war in Vietnam and the terrible suffering that the people in Vietnam had had to experience because of the war. And Thich Nhat Hanh replied by saying, you know, the Vietnam War did not just happen to the Vietnamese people, it happened to everybody which is true. It happened to everybody. It's that quality of equanimity that allows us to understand this, to step back from what is happening, to see the interconnectedness that actually is in place. It allows us to sense our loving connection 
in an impartial way. We can consider ourselves to be fellow wayfarers upon this earth. And so it's the quality of equanimity that actually allows metta to be boundless and not confined just to those whom we know or those whom we like. It's equanimity which endows metta with a sense of patience, with the ability to be constant, to endure, even if our extension of loving care or kindness is not returned, even through all of the ups and downs. It's equanimity that allows us to be present and to honor our, honor our sense of connectedness. That's an extraordinary possibility to be able to extend our reach of friendship to all beings. And in just that same way, when we talk about compassion, being that trembling or the quivering of the heart in relation to someone's pain, it's equanimity, again, which helps compassion be boundless, that allows us to generate the sense of compassion towards all that lives, all living creatures, all beings everywhere. It's also equanimity that endows compassion with courage and with some fearlessness so that we can see pain again and again. We can open to it and not get so lost in aversion, not get so lost in trying to strike out against it or push it away. But it allows us to stay open over time. And in just that same way, equanimity allows sympathetic joy to be boundless so that we're not only focusing on those whom we like, but we can actually bear to see the happiness of others whom we may not know, those whom we don't like so much, without being driven by envy or jealousy. The quality of equanimity comes a great deal from wisdom, comes from understanding, especially from understanding relatedness, seeing how we relate to others, seeing how one moment relates to the next. And one of the most powerful ways of understanding relatedness is understanding karma, which is why the Buddha called karma the light of the world. Because it does illustrate for us the nature of happiness and the nature of suffering in our lives. And it allows us to understand how to affect change. It's karma which illuminates how things work. If you go back just to that very simple conceptualization of it with the recognition that the kind of seed that we plant will condition the kind of fruit that we reap. It's just a law of nature. It's not a question of judgment or retribution. We understand the laws of nature. We understand the power of our volitions. We understand the power of the field in which we are planting those seeds and all of the different conditions that can come together to bear fruit. And we can see that even if we don't believe in many lives, just in this life, We perform an action, and it doesn't just disappear, which sometimes seems too bad. But we are very connected, in fact, and what we do ripples out. It ripples out into the universe in some energetic way, 
And precisely because we are so connected, we're not isolated, we're not standing alone, that energy will return to us in some way. We can feel this, we can experience this on a lot of different levels. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where a particular mental pattern or mind state is so strong within at a particular time that it seems to get reflected in external circumstances quite often. It's like seeing the same outside of ourselves that we're seeing within ourselves. There was a time in my life many years ago when three times in one week I became locked inside a room. I went to a friend's wedding and I got locked in a storeroom. And that very same week I went to attend a workshop and I got locked in a bathroom. And then I went to Northampton, a town not too far from here, that very same week, and I got locked in a shopping mall. And all three times that that happened, in one week, the people who got me out said, this has never happened before. (laughs) And it was so odd because there was definitely something inside of me that was manifesting externally. And it was true. That's what it felt like inside. But we can see that sometimes, that it's not so abstract, it's not so unknown. We can see it just in that moment, or sometimes we see it over time. We see the consequences of our actions as we do different things. If we understand the sense of connectedness, it points to the fact that we don't live in isolation. And in fact, there's less fear rather than more in our lives. One year we were suffering from a lot of cockroaches here and we went through agonized board meetings again and again and again and again about whether we should kill them or not. And it was a lot of suffering trying to figure it out. And at one point somebody sent me a letter suggesting that we get a certain kind of lizard that would eat cockroaches. And it was interesting because aside from whether it was moral or not to bring something in to eat something else, we began to have this vision of like, what would it be like if we actually did bring in the lizards and then we create a whole new ecosystem? Who knows what would happen in 10 years? Like who would follow in the lizard? You know, maybe we'd have snakes. Who knows what we would have? But it's so interesting just to appreciate that what we do is going to make a difference. What we care about, what we cultivate, what we act upon, it's going to make a difference. We respond to that understanding by refraining from planting more seeds of greed and hatred because it makes no sense. It will not disappear. It's going to make a difference. When we understand that level of connectedness, then we understand how we are meeting the consequences of our actions in many different situations. And that is the root of equanimity. That is why we say, traditionally, in doing the equanimity meditation, all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. All beings are the owners of their karma. 
Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. Which doesn't mean that we shun them or that we push them away and we say, oh, you miserable person, way over there in the far distance, I don't care about you, it's just too bad, you know, you must have deserved it to be suffering like that. And we don't say that because we understand that we're all connected, that it's all one. Someone else's suffering is not removed from us. But we do understand that we each need to take responsibility for our own happiness, that it is born out of our relationship to what's going on, and that's wisdom. An example is often used of equanimity of having an adult child. And when a child is young and extremely vulnerable, we relate to them in a certain way. They need a certain kind of care and nurturance. But then they grow up, and we still love them, we still care about them, we still have metta for them, but we must be able to let go, to acknowledge that this person is making their own decisions, they are making choices, and there needs to be some spaciousness and some allowance around that. In contemporary language, we talk about it in terms of people who are self-destructive, and we see them engaging in self-destructive behavior. We may wish with all of our hearts, and we should, that they would cease to experience suffering, that they would be free from suffering. But the reality is that as long as they continue in that pattern of behavior, they will continue to suffer. So the equanimity doesn't deny the metta, it in fact allows us to keep sending metta without impatience, without demand. You know, stop right now or I won't love you anymore. It's the equanimity that allows us to keep opening without that demand, without impatience and without stopping. <coughs> that is the power of equanimity. It's not to be caught in our immediate reaction, to be caught in our conditioning not to become vengeful, not to push away, not to hurt people back because they've hurt us. Equanimity understands relatedness, how things are connected, how our actions are connected to our present experience, how our present actions are connected to our future experience, and how we're connected to one another. It goes back to something I said earlier in the retreat, looking at this world from the perspective of Buddha mind, which, according to the cosmology that he taught, begins in beginningless time. So from that perspective, in the countless lifetimes in which we have been born and have died, we've all been everything and we've all done everything. Even those of us just sitting here in this room together, we have all been everything for one another. We've been friends and enemies and helpers and we've killed one another and we've harmed one another and we've just saved one another's lives over and over and over again. We've all wandered from beginningless time and have done everything. And so we're all quite connected. There's no reason in our lives for a sense of separation, being distant or cut off. And there's certainly no reason for a sense of self-righteousness, you know, for pulling away from somebody and looking at them and saying, well, I could never have done that. I mean, certainly we could have done that. There's no way to actually remove ourselves because we are so connected. 
It's almost like looking at a dream from a certain perspective of analysis and seeing that we ourselves are everything and everybody in that dream. Every figure, every character is really ourselves just playing a different role. So even if we don't have that kind of resonance with that sense of many lifetimes or beginningless time, all it really takes is that very careful and honest look within. Having been here this long and looked at our minds, probably we have seen the seeds of almost everything. The most incredible violence and the greatest outpouring of love. It's all in there. Sometimes it just takes 15 minutes of careful looking and we see an incredible range of what a human being can feel and what a human being can know. The greatest acts of devotion and the most terrible kinds of things that we can do to one another, it's all in there. There's no way that we can pull apart and say, I am so pure, I am contained in this pure little packet and the rest of the world is lost. Because it is all within us and we are quite connected. We can look carefully at all of our different experiences, knowing that we ourselves contain everything. And through the force of our understanding, our wisdom, we come to be at peace. We come to equanimity. We can see it all and we can open to it all, whether it's within us or it's outside of us. We see that in such a fundamental way, we are not in control. This body will grow old whether we like it or not. It will hurt whether we like it or not. That the mind will go through all of its changes, all of these impulses, all of these desires, whether we like it or not. But still we can be happy. We can be free. Because the happiness or the freedom doesn't come from the experience of the body or the mind itself. It comes from the resiliency and the lightness and the spaciousness and the serenity that can be there in meeting that experience no matter what's happening, whether it's pleasure or pain or praise or blame or gain or loss or fame or disrepute, whether we're sitting in the Sydney Opera House or on the streets of Calcutta. There's a place within us that can meet it all. We develop equanimity as a tool, as we do the meditation practice. We also experience it as the natural function of the mind that is aware, that is mindful. It's the peace that doesn't get caught in reaction all of the time, but is not deadened or cut off from experience. In fact, that peace empowers us to more fully connect, because with a great loving acceptance, we don't need to pretend and we don't need to deny. We can see that we are not apart, we are not separate from any of our experience, internal or external, and we can be present. As Krishnamurti once said, there is no silence without love. And it's that sense of silence which is peace, which is equanimity. And it is fully alive it's connected to all possibilities. It's filled with love. 
when we look at our minds at any given moment, we discover either sensitivity and openness or we see a lot of armoring and rigidity. Equanimity is that very uncontrived and free state when our heart is actually open, when there's aliveness and openness both. The mind is alight with the consciousness of that, with the sensitivity, the resiliency, and also the ability to let go, to let be, to see things as they are. It's very decisive, it's very strong, and it's the reason that we practice. Most recently, when I went to Asia, I was with some friends, and we were in Nepal, and then we stopped in Thailand just for a few days. This was a few years ago. And when in Nepal, we had bought a number of Buddha statues and we were taking them with us through Thailand. As we were going through Thailand, the security was somewhat tight at the airport and somebody pulled us aside out of this line and he started asking us all of these questions like, did you pack your own bags and have they been in your safekeeping since you packed and what did you do last night? And then he looked at us and he said, apropos of nothing at all that I could see, he said, are you Jewish? And I said, yes. And that was it. And we went on through security. We went through immigration and maybe 20 or 25 minutes later, our hand luggage was being checked through the x-ray machine. And in one of those bags, we had all of the many Buddhas that we had bought when we were in Nepal. So there they were, lit up beautifully on the screen of the x-ray machine. And the woman standing behind the machine turned to me and said, are you a Buddhist? And I said, yes. <laughs> and I went on through. And then sitting on the plane, I began reflecting and I thought that perhaps that was the most condensed period in my entire life in which I'd been asked my religious affiliation twice and I'd managed to say yes both times. But I was reflecting on the fact that the practice is not about carving out an identification. It's not about creating another sense of us and them. It is about that happiness, which is equanimity, which is not difficult to feel, but it's difficult to locate. We tend in our lives to be so attached to pleasure and so averse to pain that it's as though we're looking for happiness in all of the wrong places. We find our greatest happiness through this sense of equanimity. That's why in the Mangala Sutta, where the Buddha is talking about all of the different kinds of blessings we can experience in our lives, he talked about equanimity as being the greatest of all of these blessings. To have true peace through all of the ups and downs and the changes is the greatest blessing that we can know to allow things to be the way that they actually are without this need to manipulate them, without needing to manipulate people to have our needs met. There's a lot of honor in that. There's a lot of strength in that. Another word for equanimity is dispassion, which is a state of great honor. 
It's like when we walk into a situation dispassionately, we're not walking in with a kind of hidden agenda of what we can get out of the situation or what we're afraid of, what we need to guard against in the situation. We can be with people, we can be with experiences as they actually are. And so there is great honor, strength, sufficiency, and completeness in that. And that is one of the bases for our ability to love when we have that sense of sufficiency. If we feel some recognition that we have enough, then we can offer it. If we feel that there's not enough, then we want to hold on. If we have a sense of sufficiency and ability to meet the situation, we can open, we can love. When we're not moving towards what's happening, trying to grab it and hold on to it, trying to mold it toward desires, and we're also not shrinking away because we need to protect ourselves, then we have true equanimity. It's not that cold, hard state that we fear, but it is actually what empowers us to fully connect because we don't need to pretend and we don't need to deny. It's a very extraordinary state. We find a lot of ups and downs in these days, just as we do in life. And more than anything else, the point is to be open, to be resilient, to allow things to be as they are, to understand our fundamental connectedness, to understand we can be at one with all of our experience, and to know that it's all all right. Things have not taken a terrible turn for the worse but it is all part of the same changing flow of events, which is unstoppable and also quite bearable. I'd like to close with this quotation from the book Woman in Nature, which I think points to this sense of oneness with all of our experience. We say you cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say that everything is moving and we are part of this motion, that the soil is moving, that the water is moving. We say that the earth draws water to her from the clouds. We say the rainfall parts on each side of the mountain like the parting of our hair, and that the shape of the mountain tells where the water has passed. We say this water washes the soil from the hillsides that the rivers carry sediment, that rain, when it splashes, carries small particles, that the soil itself flows with water and streams underground. We say that water is taken up into the roots of plants, into stems, that it washes down hills into rivers, that these rivers flow to the sea, that from the sea and the sunlight this water rises to the sky. This water is carried in clouds and comes back as rain, comes back as fog, back as dew, as wetness in the air. We say everything comes back. You cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say that every act has its consequences, that this place has been shaped by the river and the shape of this place tells the river where to go. We say look how the water flows from this place and returns as rainfall. Everything returns, we say, and one thing follows another. There are limits, we say, on what can be done, and everything moves. We are all a part of this motion, we say, 
and the way of the river is sacred, and this grove of trees is sacred, and we ourselves, we tell you, are sacred. So let's sit together for a few minutes. This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society on December 6, 1993. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can